reading from the book of 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. And for those who are visiting, my name is Paul. I'm the senior pastor. And as much as I want to unpack this passage today, we have a guest preacher here at One Fellowship. Now, listen, this is not a um, guest to us. He's actually one of our own, and he preaches maybe once or twice a year. It's my joy to introduce John Mackerel, especially to the guest here today. John is an associate national director for InterVarsity. Sounds like a big deal. Well, it kind of is. John, he's a big deal, guys. He's a big deal. If you want to video this, take pictures afterwards, he's um, no, he's giving me this. Uh, John has worked with InterVarsity since Clemson, I believe. Um, so about four or five decades, and uh, I'm lying again. Anyway, John has written lots and lots of curriculum to introduce um, college students to Jesus and grow them in their faith. And he's just been promoted and promoted and promoted. And so now he's over programming for universities and colleges across the United States. I asked John, how many universities and colleges um, does InterVarsity play a role in? And he said about 700. And, and so it really is a joy to welcome our very own John Mackerel to our pulpit today as we get closer to the end of our series, this book on First John that we've been working through this summer. So let's give our own John Mackerel a warm welcome this morning. Well, 
good morning. Now that the pressure is on, let's hope I don't mess this up. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so full disclosure, I have a confession to make. I cut somebody off on the road the other day. Ever happened to you? Happened to me. So I'm on Long Point. I'm taking a right onto Long Point Drive. I'm by the Chick-fil-A and uh, had three screaming kids in the back of the car. They were my kids. And um, I had the red light. Uh, and the people turning left coming out of Bell Hall had the green light, so I had to wait. But then I saw a gap in the cars. And as my wife likes to say I do at times, I tried to shoot the gap. Well, apparently I did not shoot fast enough because the person turning left had to swerve to miss me. Uh, what's worse is that I got so close to them that I made eye contact with the other driver. Uh, it's always awkward. Uh, and it was at that moment that I realized that the person that I was cutting off was Pastor Paul. <laughs> I cut our senior pastor off, y'all. Uh, but I'm here to testify that Pastor Paul demonstrated no road rage. <laughs> Instead, he called me and he asked me how my family was doing. <laughs> it's very kind. Made me feel worse about cutting him off. <laughs> and so I would just like to say, Pastor Paul, I'm sorry for endangering your life and the life of our church. So... Let me pray for us uh, as I try to turn this story uh, into a sermon, shall we? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we joke this morning, but uh, we do want to hear from you. We don't want to just be more biblically informed. We want to be transformed. Uh, so we pray and invite your spirit to come and speak to us and change us in light of what you've done and what you have to say. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I got off the phone uh, with Pastor Paul, I thought, that's typical Paul. He's a kind person. He cares about us individually and corporately as a church. When he stands up here and he preaches and he calls people out by name, it's because he knows us and he cares about us. When he talks about going local and personal with his faith, he means it and he lives it out. Paul is a kind person. It's characteristic of him. And the reality is, is that we all have things that are characteristic of us. Some of us are disciplined, methodical, intentional people, very productive. Others of us are more relaxed, laid back, steady eddy types, doesn't easily rattle. Still others of us are energetic and optimistic and oozing positivity. Bless y'all people. We need y'all people. There's many, many individual characteristics. But the question that I want to start with is, what about us corporately? What about us as Christians? Are there characteristics that should capture us and be true of us as followers of Jesus? Now, to answer that, many people often point to religious activity as the marks of a follower of Jesus. It's going to church, it's reading the Bible, it's praying, or maybe it's striving to be a good moral person, or maybe it's a decision that you made in the past um, or that you were baptized that you can point to. And I believe that John, the author of this passage, would probably say to all of those, absolutely, absolutely, those should be true activities of someone who follows Jesus. But is there something deeper? Is there a defining mark of people who follow Jesus? 
And it's not hard to see from the passage that Kathy just read that that thing is love. Love is and ought to be the defining mark of us as followers of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to dive into as Mark or John um, explores what this love looks like. What does genuine Christ-like love look like? Now, uh, as a disclaimer, I'm a self-professed Bible geek. Uh, I love to read commentaries and look at uh, original languages and all of that. And I would love to show the cool literary structure and styles and get into the historical context and everything. But we have to eat lunch at some point. So I will spare you of that. Instead, what I hope to do is just touch on a few different pieces of the passage in hopes to kind of capture the essence of what John is talking about, because it is packed full of good stuff. So we're going to start at the very end, and we're going to kind of work our way uh, back to the beginning. So in verse uh, 20, John says, whoever claims to love God yet hates their brother and sister is a liar. Doesn't mince words. Whoever claims to love God, therefore, whoever claims to be a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian and yet you are harboring hate or resentment or bearing a grudge and you're not doing anything about it, I believe John would respectfully say, don't lie, don't lie. If you have judgmental thoughts or feelings towards people who are different than you, whether it be gender or ethnicity or nationality or morality or financially, whatever differentiating mark you can come up with, and you call yourself a Christian, John would respectfully say, don't lie. And he goes on to explain why. He says, for whoever hates their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they haven't seen. In other words, if you can't love the person sitting right in front of you, who you know, that person who, by the way, was created in the image of God and created by God and for God, if you can't love them, then how can you expect to love God whom you've never even seen before? And here John is echoing something that Jesus said. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of his return. He says, at the end of the age, I'm going to return and I'm going to gather all of humanity together before me. And I'm going to set aside those people that truly love and follow me. And I'm going to tell them, come and enter my kingdom. Live with me forever. You know why? Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I was sick and imprisoned, you came and you visited me. And just as a side note, listen to how tangible these aspects of love are. Love isn't just a feeling. It is a decisive action. Love is a warm meal. Love is a cup of clean water. Love is providing people with safe and dry and warm houses to live in. Love is paying someone a visit. It's tangible. But the people respond to to Jesus. They say, well, Lord, when did we see you? Like it says in 1 John, God is unseen. They said, well, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or alone or imprisoned and sick? And Jesus replies, truly, I tell you, as you have done for them, you have done for me. As you have done for them, you have done for me. Jesus so identifies with his people that loving them is loving him. How do you express your love for God? Is it 
by reading the Bible? Is it by praying, going to church, singing worship songs? I believe John again would say, absolutely, yes, those are ways to express love. But is there something deeper? Is there one way to really show your love towards God? What, what is God's love language? John would say, it's loving that person sitting right next to you. It's loving the person that you work alongside on a daily basis. It's loving that neighbor across the street. It's loving that community across the river from us. That's how you love God. Loving people is loving God. I think we get this, especially us as parents. I think we understand this concept. Uh, so uh, Kristen and I, my wife and I have three children. Our oldest is Dargan. She's uh, eight years old. She's going to be a rising third grader at Philip Simmons Elementary. One thing that I love about our school is that they have student of the month. Does anybody go to Philip Simmons uh, in here? Yes, got a few people. Yep. Um, so student of the month, but it's not for academics. It's not for extracurriculars or any achievements. It's about character. So every month they have a character trait, and then the teachers are observing their students in the classroom and how they interact with one another, and they pay attention to how they speak to one another and how they treat one another. And then they get together and they vote uh, and pick somebody to award this um, honor. And then when they do, they announce their name over the broadcast system to the whole school, and then they also come and they stick a sign in your yard that says, Philip Simmons, student of the month. Uh, and what happens is, you know, as you're out playing in the neighborhood, neighbors see the sign and they say, oh, congratulations. You know, why'd you win student of the month? And I think it's a, a simple but a cool way to kind of reaffirm the characteristics that we love to see in our children. Well, one day I'm picking Dargan up from school and she gets in the car and she's ecstatic. She says, Dad, guess what? I said, what, Dee? She said, I want student of the month. And I was like, that's awesome. What'd you win it for? And she says, generosity. I said, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And it, what turns out is that the teacher said that Dargan is always sharing her school supplies with her friends, especially when they forget it. You know, her pencils and little unicorn erasers and stuff. Uh, on the playground, whenever someone gets hurt, she'll stop playing. She'll run over to them and check on them until the teacher comes. And so we're driving home. We pull up to the house. You can put up that picture. And Dargan sees this sign, and she's just beaming, so excited. But you know who else was? I was. Kristen and I could not have been more affirmed and felt more proud. And we didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't share my pencils with anybody. <laughs> but even though that sign was for her, we felt like it was just as much for us. Why? Because Dargan is our daughter. Her words, her actions, her love for those around her is a reflection of us as parents. And so it is with God. Our words, our actions, our love towards other is both a reflection of God and an expression of love to God. Loving people is loving God. Loving people is the number one primary core way by which we express our love for God. That's why John uh, in 1 John says, love isn't an option. He goes on in verse 21, he says, he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God, again, anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, anyone who calls himself a Christian, if you love God, you must, you must love also your brothers and sisters. 
Love is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not one of many things that we should strive for. It is the thing that we should strive for. It is the foundational characteristic by which all other characteristics of Jesus are built upon. It's the soil in which all character grows. Love is a must. And again, John is just echoing something that Jesus taught here. In chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, it reclaims the story of Jesus' last meal with his friends right before he's crucified. And Jesus had just washed their sturdy, dinky, stinky feet. And he gets up and he sits back down at the table and he tells them, he says, listen, do you see what I just did there? Yeah, people in my position don't do things like that. You know that. And here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love one another like that. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. He says, you know, love each other as I have loved you. Don't love people as they love you. Don't treat people as they treat you. Don't treat people based on how you think they should be treated. No, love people based on how I have loved you. He sets himself as the standard and the measuring rod. And he says, that's how I want you to love others. And you know what? It's by that, it is by love that they will know you are my disciples, not by how much scripture you know, not by your church attendance, not by a decision you made in the past. No, it is by love that they will know you are mine. And we're not just talking about loving friends and family here. We're talking about loving your enemies kind of love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the people gathered there, he says, y'all have a saying. You say, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But you know what I tell you? I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want you to hope the best for people who hope the worst for you. I want you to legitimately pray and seek the well-being of those people. And you know why? Because that's how God loves you. God does not base his love towards us. He does not show or withhold his love based on how we acted, our behavior in that current day, whatever it is. He's not some cosmic Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice. Love, Jesus goes on to say, he says, listen, God causes the sun to rise on both the good and the evil. God sends rain to provide food for both the righteous and the unrighteous. God has his this general, generous, indiscriminate love towards humanity. Jesus presses on even further. He says, listen, if, if you only love those who love you, what difference does that make? What reward will they be? He says, listen, don't even, don't even pagans love one another. Don't even tax collectors and sinners, kind of the worst of the worst in their society, don't they look out for one another? In our context, it'd be like, don't even criminals look out for one another? Don't even terrorists love one another? Listen, if you love just like them, how is your love any different? No, I'm calling you to a differential kind of love, a love that this world knows nothing about. Don't hate your enemies, love them, pray for them, and seek their well-being. Man, where do you find love like that? 
Because I don't know about you, but I struggle. I fall woefully short of even loving the people that love me, even the people in my near vicinity. I struggle to be patient and to be kind and to not escalate arguments. You know, I don't know if I have that kind of love within me, at least not to, to demonstrate in some sort of consistent basis. And John comes back in in 1 John and he says, yeah, that's right. That's the point. Because that kind of love doesn't come from you. It comes from God. He says in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. Back up at the beginning of the passage in verse 7, he says, listen, dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from who? It comes from God. He says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. This is how God demonstrated his love among us. You know, when God wanted to show us that he loved us, do you know what he did? He sent his one and only son as an atoning sacrifice. You know what love looks like to God? It looks like sacrifice. It looks like sacrificial death on the behalf of somebody else. It looks like giving your life away so that someone else can live. It looks like lowering yourself so that you can raise someone else up. Speaking of sacrifice, speaking of the cross, have you ever wondered how Jesus did it? I mean, how did Jesus endure all that suffering knowing that he could have stopped it? At any given moment, he could have stopped it right? Son of God in flesh, incarnation. This is what we believe. He could have stopped it. He tells the religious leaders, the people that are going to have him crucified in John 10, he says, listen, no one can take my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Only I have the authority to lay it down. You can't take my life. I give my life. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was being arrested and about to be taken off to be crucified, Peter, one of his disciples, pulls a sword to fight back, start a knife fight. And it's just Jesus, it's almost as if he says, listen, stop. Do you even know who I am? Do you even know what I'm capable of? He says in Matthew 26, he says, don't you know that I could just ask the father and immediately have legions of angels descend on this place? Listen, if I wanted a fight, it wouldn't be a fight. It would be a massacre. Put your sword away. You don't know what I'm doing here. He says, you know, at any given point, he could have stopped it. When they lied about him in court, he could have stopped it. When they slapped him in the face, when they spit in his face, he could have stopped it. When they whipped him near to shreds, he could have stopped it. And when they stripped him naked and put a crown of thorns on his head and nailed him to a cross, please believe he could have stopped it. They even taunted him to do it. The religious leaders sat there at the foot of the cross and they said, look at this guy. He could save others, but he can't even save himself. Oh, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, then just come down, prove it. Show us right now. Show us. Stop all this nonsense. And he could have done it. Oh, if I was Jesus, I'm sorry, none of us would be here right now. (laughs) None of us would be here right now. Man, if I was Jesus, I would be like, how long, how long have I been putting up with you people? 
Ever since we put you here on this planet, all you keep going back to is hurting and hoarding and fighting and enslaving and killing one another. And you're doing it right now. And I've come to make things right. I've come to give you life. I've come to clean up the mess that you have made. And this is how you respond. I'm sorry. If I am Jesus in that moment, I would have lit that mountain up. (laughs) I would have gone Old Testament on those people. (laughs) But you know how Jesus responds? Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing right now. Are you kidding me? Who says that? Who does that? You know who does that? God does. Because God is love. That is who he is. Let's not fool ourselves. Do we really think that three nails could hold the creator of the universe to a piece of wood? Those nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. Love did. It was love that held him there because he knew, he knew that if he saved himself, just like they were taunting him to do, if he saved himself, that he would lose us. And when Jesus looked at us and he saw all our faults with all our failures and all our addictions and all the human atrocities that we've committed over human history, he said, I would rather die than live without them. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that he deserves. Like it says in 1 John, he says, he sent his one and only son so that we might live through him. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. It's the kind of life that Paul says in 1 Timothy, the life that is truly life. That's what I've come for you. That's what love looks like. And I like to think that as John is sitting down to pen these words and he's reflecting on his personal experience of Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection and ascension, and he's thinking, how do, how do we respond to this? I like to think that the spirit just whispered in his ear, love. You should love like that. That's what love looks like. So, Paul, so John writes, In verse 11, beloved, beloved, since God so loved us, let us love one another. Two questions is a point of application. Number one, do you know that love? Have you experienced, as you sit here today, have you experienced God's deep love for you? Is that love the number one driving, directing, defining force in your life? Do you know that love? And here's why it's important to start with God's love for us, because we cannot love like God until we know and have felt loved by God. He is the source of this love. We love because he first loved us. He is the source of this tangible, differential, countercultural, sacrificial kind of love. And you have to experience it and know it and feel its full effects 
and be perfected and matured and complete in it, as John, 1 John says, so that you can express it to others. Do you know that love? Number two, for those of you that have said, yes, I have experienced God's deep love for me. Man, it's changed me. It is changing me. For you, I would offer this question. What do other people experience in your presence? What do people experience when you walk into the room? What does your spouse or your children or your parents or your coworkers or your friends or your neighbors, what do they experience after spending time with you? Do they feel encouraged? Do they feel heard? Do they feel uh, challenged to be better? Or do they feel anxious or, you know, or, or unheard or worse, belittled or even worse, indifference? Do you leave people better than you found them? Or do you leave people feeling drained? He says, love, love is the defining force. Let us love one another. You know, we should love like God. If you get nothing else, God so loved us. Let us love one another. So in the words of 1 John, as he says, beloved, dear friends, one fellowship. Since God so loved us, let us love one another. Let us speak kindly. Let us serve diligently. Let us give generously. Let us bear with one another patiently. Let us forgive each other repeatedly because that's how God loves us. And let us love this community and this city and this world in which we live like God loves us. May it be so with us and ours. Amen.